My name is Tyler, and I'm a Christian who has struggled with suicide ideation. I didn't want to be the ghost hanging over all family events. So I didn't do it for me. I did it because I didn't want to be that specter that, you know, that hangs over the family. That was the initial driver in realizing, like, I'm beyond, I'm not my death. Like, I, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. I cannot break this. And having, you know, having a therapist, or had already, she, she had already told me, hey, you should, if this gets worse, check yourself in. The I'm a Christian Who podcast is real stories of real Christians sharing their struggles. We're not here to judge. We're not here to talk politics. We're here to learn how to love people better. This episode needs a couple disclaimers. Tyler's story, as you just heard, is about his struggle with suicide. And he is going to talk very plainly about a lot of the abuse he endured growing up, but also about the events that led up to a very close suicide. What he's about to share is not rare. The most recent statistics show that in 2021, 12.3 million American adults seriously thought about suicide, 3.5 million planned a suicide attempt, and 1.7 million have attempted suicide in a single year. Now, when it comes to actual deaths, there's about one death every 11 minutes by suicide. Now, as Christians, it's important for us to love one another and show people that we love them, even despite what they're struggling with mentally. I also want to put this out there that before the episode starts, that if you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact Contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by texting or calling 988. You can also chat with someone at 988lifeline.org. And before we start, I'd love to give a shout out to our sponsor, Salt, the dating app made by Christians for Christians. What I love about Salt is not only does it introduce single Christians to other amazing single Christians, but it lets you match and connect on values, character traits, and interests, not just pictures in a quick paragraph. The other cool thing is they've got daily live audio events where you can connect talk and chat with hundreds of other single Christians on loads of different topics to dating, film, spirituality, and more. I'm actually going to be on there weekly talking about the topics that happen on this show. So if you want to give it a shot, download the SALT app today. And for those in the U.S. and Canada, use my code CWCS for three months of free premium. Wherever you are, if you meet someone special, let us know and we'll feature you on our Insta story and get salt to pay for your next date. Go on, add some salt to your love life. You've got nothing to lose. Okay, so I feel like there's no easy way to kind of jump into this story. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of your history before all of this happened. So what was your childhood like? You know, I, I think... Uh, I don't know if you grew up Christian, if that was a big part of your childhood or not, but what was your childhood like? Oh, my childhood was very interesting. That's one way of putting it. So, so I was uh, sort of raised Christian. So I, my, my mother was a was very legalistic and very judgmental of others while completely glossing over her own stuff and also an alcoholic. Very much so like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Look at what those people are doing. While at the same time, you know, I have a few memories of um, basically trying to get away from her because she was in that drunken super. Uh, that's actually one of my very first memories is um, my grandmother trying to get me away from my mother because she was so drunk. And I think I was like three years old. But then on the other side of it was my dad, who my, my dad has always been a guy who, I don't know his long-term faith journey. Uh, I know several times, you know, very much so in his faith, very, very solid in it. 
but I think he just kind of got in over his head with the marriage. And so I had this weird dichotomy where it was very, on the one side, very, very stable, very much so I always knew what to expect from my dad. Always knew that if he said it, he was going to follow through. What, you know, if I did something, what his reaction would be, all of that. My mother was roulette wheel. And I grew up somewhat Christian in the sense of, like, you know, I knew a lot of, like, you know, the Bible stories and all that kind of stuff. Had a general knowledge, you know, had kind of a theological knowledge of a lot of stuff. And then my mother got clean, stopped drinking, had a big psychotic break, a bunch of other stuff happened when I was about 12 or 13. You know, at that time, I actually, I was a church camp salvation kid. And I think I was 13 or 14 years old, had been going to church off and on for a long time and started going a little more consistently around that time. You know, seeing my mother, you know, change, all this other stuff. It was like, oh, great, you know, and then... I had already had a lot of stuff where I'd been kind of ridiculed by her when she would get drunk. She would get drunk and ridicule me for, you know, the stuff that teenage boys get into, i.e., you know, porn and things like that. Well, she, if she found out about it, it was not something to be like, oh, okay, this is a topic for your dad. It was stuff to be made fun of. Now, when you say made fun of, what would she do? I remember some of the jokes would just be things like if she knew I had been up to something, and she would just kind of poke at it, be like, hey, you know, why were you, uh, you know, why are you gone for so long? Or, you know, she, there was one time I was a kid, I bought, I used the family cable box to, you know, rent something. And then she would just make fun of the title, being like, oh, why'd you go for that? Uh, and there was also other stuff where she would poke and prod at me. The first time she realized that I was, when I was about 13 years old. So I should also point out, I, most people end up saying I had, a, I had a bit of a glow up because when I was 12 years old, I was chubby. I had braces, glasses, all that. Well, when my mother found out I was interested in a girl uh, that was a daughter of one of my dad's coworkers. Because she point out, in the midst of all this, I was homeschooled. So I am stuck with this woman all day. <laughs> but yeah, so in the midst of all, anyway, I met one of my dad's coworkers. She was my age, thought she was cute. First thing my mother said when she found out was, you're chubby, four-eyed, and have braces. Who wants you? Wow. And then later on, when I was about 13 years old, my, my, she's, I got set up with my, one of my sister's friends who was younger. And this girl was 16 years old. I had a crush on her, so they just kind of did like a joking, you know, set, set us out of a date kind of thing. Basically, the girl just went along with it because my mother bought her beer. And then it was one night we were there, we were hanging out by a fire, and like my mother just tells her, like, oh yeah, just go take him over and, you know, take him to the room over there and just make a man out of him. Wow. 13 years old here. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, what was your dad's reaction to all this? Because, I mean, you, your mom being unstable, but your dad having that stability, was he there for that and just not, not combating it? He didn't know about a lot of it until later on. So you basically got to think, we, I grew up in a decent size. Decent size home. And so a lot of these conversations would happen in the back patio area around a, a fire pit. Because what the part of the thing was, my mother smoked and never wanted to smoke inside. So the whole thing was always, didn't matter the time of year, was make a, make a fire. She'd go out there, smoke and drink and carry on with my sister and her friends. I would you know, be out there hanging out with them. My dad, you know, he would be trying, he'd be still trying to get caught up on paperwork from the day, things like that. And he just generally wouldn't want to be around it. And also some of the stuff, there's some of it, I don't remember super well, but I also know a decent amount of stuff happened when he was traveling. 
Uh, so he was a pharmaceutical rep, so he was he did have to travel a fair amount. So some of it happened at those times, but he with a lot of it when he found out about it, that kind of stuff, it would cause some pretty good fights and things like that. And at the same time, you know, his trying to just think like, how do I save my marriage? How do I save my marriage? How do I save my marriage? Getting you know, kind of going back to my like general trajectory of things. Because what ended up happening happen was about a year after, you know, my church camp, salvation and all that, my mother relapsed into drinking. She started going out at night, which she never did before. She would always just hang out around the house and drink there. Well, started realizing she was drinking again. And then she started going out. And then it finally, there was one night my dad went to go find her and she wasn't where she said she'd be kicked off a whole long process where it ultimately came out that she was having an affair. And that's when he finally said, I'm having enough. I've had enough. Wow. Cause the other thing too, is after talking to him years later about it was part of the reason why he stayed was because my mother didn't have an arrest record for anything. She had done several things over the years that she could have been arrested over, but you get in front of a, you know, a court, you have a, woman who has no history of psychological, no, you know, no committals, nothing, no arrest record versus the husband. You're talking at least 50, 50 custody. Most likely in Kentucky, you're talking mother's going to get more custody. And part of the thing was he was kind of waiting for me to be able, when it finally, it, the straw, it finally snapped when I was also old enough to say, I don't want any part of this. Up until that point, you know, I thought I wanted to go to the seminary and all this other stuff. And, I literally at that point just threw God a middle finger and was like, yeah, no, like I watched this person. While all this is going on, you know, I, I would venture to guess your mental health was struggling too. Do do you Mm. remember a moment or a time when you started realizing that your mental health was different than other people? Cause I don't know if at that time mental health was at the forefront of everybody's conversation. So when did you start realizing like, maybe I don't see the world the same way everybody else does? Part of the thing with that was a little hard because of being homeschooled. So I didn't interact with other kids. I had some, you know, activities, things like that. So you just thought this was all normal. I knew it was normal. I just didn't know how unnormal it was, I guess, would be one way of putting it. I had enough experience to know, like, something right. But the kind of, the first kind of, like, snap um, thing that got me in therapy when I was young was, was struggling with, you know, pornography and stuff like that at that age knowing it was wrong, all that, I ended up, and of course, because, and I think also because of like the ridicule and things like that, I felt a lot of shame around it. And then I basically one day decided I was going to try to self-mutilate. My mother walked in on me with a a knife on my forearm because I was planning to just start doing cuts in it as just a punishment to myself. That's what got me into therapy went on for a little while and then it was a, a few months into that when we started the story i talked about where well one of my first memories is my my grandmother trying to keep me away from my mother when the psychiatrist psychologist found out about that he told my dad um i think it's time he also see a psychiatrist and see about some potential medications wow because that's when it finally clicked that this trauma and everything was and been going on for a long time. How did your mom feel about you going to see a therapist? 
<laughs> um, is she uh, did not like it much after my first couple of sessions because I actually went to go see the same therapist as her. Typically, you wouldn't do that. Not oh, a good idea. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. I don't know why that happened, but it, it did. Now, here's the thing with my mother. Everything could start off as a grain of truth, but then you wouldn't really know how much she would expand upon it. Well, according to her, her next time she went in for a session, he, the, the therapist basically confronted her and said, the only mother I've met worse than you locked their child in a closet for months on end. And so she quit going to therapy at that point. I don't doubt he confronted her because I don't think he knew. I think she had been presenting a very different view of things to him. Oh, and you just brought the truth in when you started going to her therapist. Yeah. So, so yeah, she wasn't really keen on that. I also think she wasn't huge on the idea of me having something wrong as well. Uh, because even years later, when I, I spoke to her years later, it was, um, nothing was her fault. Everything was just like this amorphous set of things that happened. None of it originated with her. And I think the, the other thing too, for anyone who knows, you know, the kind of terminology, looking back, we basically realized my mother had borderline personality disorder. Manifests a lot of depression and all that, but it's a lot, a lot of manipulation. And I think, so anything that might surface that, i.e. her finally getting called out, she couldn't stand. So... But now after this, you know, there comes that moment where you're done with homeschool, you've got to be an mm -hmm. adult, and your suicide attempt was fairly recent. I know it was, you know, th three or four years ago, and mm -hmm. you're in your 30s. So you had, you know, this big chunk of time of being a young adult before this this moment that we're going to talk about happened. So yeah. what were those years like where now you're off on your own, I assume mm -hmm. interacting with other people? Like, how did, how did the way you were raised affect your young adult life? After my parents' divorce... I ended up being in public school for about two years, which was very good. Taught me how to socialize, all that, because I literally, first day of school, I was shaking. It's awesome. And then uh, went on to college. College was actually pretty good for me overall. Uh, I was agnostic at that point, you know, kind of a deist. Basically, I liked the idea of Christianity, just like any of the rules. And so, you know, usual, the usual. And then, the usual uh, college, I feel like the usual college questioning. I just don't want the rules, but I want the love. <laughs> basically, yes. I believe it. I see, like, I've got all the logic arguments, but this means I can't drink and <laughs> pull around and all this other stuff. So, anyway, uh, got through college uh, pretty, you know, there was eventful stuff there, but just moving on quickly. Uh, got into, you know, more young adulthood. I had quite a spell there for a while where life just went up and down, up and down. Basically, I kept struggling with what would start off as basically things that would start off as porn and things like that, and then they would spiral further and further and further. Um, what does that mean? It means it would go from the screen not being enough. It would go to trying to find things in person in several different ways, a couple of them frankly, illegal, not I mean, basically pay-to-play kind of thing. Yeah. And then that kept on rolling off and on for a while. I would get, I'd kind of get back closer to church and faith and try to kind of straighten things out, but then I'd still have, feel like this dual nature. You know, I might get into a stable relationship, you know, where that would calm me down, but then 
I'd kind of veer back and forth. I had some very dark times at that point. Uh, at one point, I did end up where I was just manic because I felt so torn over the of the stuff I was doing. Because also, you know, it was like any other addictive pattern, staying up late in pursuit of it, not sleeping much, trying to get this golden pedestal thing of this whatever conquest, whatever I was after, and then settling for something else. And then, or getting somebody and being left feeling hollow, I went to go see a psychiatrist. And this is the point where I do say, no problems with medication, but I am very cautious about doctors that just throw medication at the problem. Because I went to see a psychiatrist who put me on Vyvanse and Adderall and a sleep aid. Within two months, I was on the max, well, two to three months, I was on the max dose of Vyvanse with an Adderall booster. Wow. I, what they thought would help with the, you know, addictive traits and all that. No, it just meant I could stay up longer. You know, you had this, this addictive personality, you said, Mm -hmm. and uh, you had an addiction to porn and sex at the Mm -hmm. time. And there was probably a little bit of hope that you felt with like, you know, you're on medication, you're seeing someone, you know, maybe this will finally go away. What do you think it was that you were searching for within that addiction? If you know what I'm asking. The more I've gone back and looked at it, it's kind of twofold. One, the biggest and most obvious one with the of my mother is affection and affirmation. You know, the person who's supposed to, you know, who always, you know, stereotypically is supposed to say, you know, oh, you're handsome. Of course, you know, who wouldn't you know, want you and all that. It was this double-edged yo-yo because she would say stuff like that when she was sober. And then she'd turn around and just cut me to my core when she was drinking. And sometimes it might even go back and forth in the same night. So there was that of just wanting to feel wanted. And then there was also just the purely just typical addictive side of it. Uh, when I was talking with one of my therapists about it, it was just like the pattern ended up looking more like alcoholics, where it's like you get something that knocks you down in general life. And then it's like, I just want something to, you know, take my mind off that pain. I want an endorphin release. And then that just starts the addictive spiral, wanting more and more and more and more. So it was, you know, it was, it was a two-sided coin. So I don't know how to put it. The, the thing that I think um, a lot of people don't understand is, you know, that um, when you talk about, you know, a sex addiction or something like that, people don't know what that means or people don't mm-hmm. know, you know, how bad it could be. So did you have any moments or stories that happened where, you know, it should have been a wake up call because I think when, when you think, let's, I mean, I don't want, I don't yeah. want to get too, get, get too crazy, no, but I think, I, think, you know, I think people don't realize the gravity of it because they think, um, you know, I, I have heard on our, on my page, people saying these Christians aren't addicted to sex. They just want sex and they're just getting it and they're feeling guilty about it. So was there a moment where you were like, this should have been a wake up call in retrospect, or it was your wake up call? That sentiment is that you're, you're relaying is a hundred percent BS because when you know you have, when I should have realized I had a problem would be when it was five o'clock in the morning, I had been up all night cruising all the dating apps, desperately hoping for someone to connect with in hopes of a you know, random one night stand. It's when you end up going for whatever method you can get to fulfill that physical desire. Or it's, it, it is bad, but it was actually a good representation. There's a freaking um, Family Guy episode where Quagmire comes out after he's discovered internet porn. 
That's not that far from the truth. Like it's it's a cartoon and it's exemplified, but it's not that far off where he just comes out. It's like it's been days. It's the same kind of thing. It's like there's one thing to be like, oh yes, you know, we were in a romantic relationship, or you know, I was out drinking one night and having fun. Like, yeah, none of that's good. None of that's you know, moral or endorsed by Christianity at all. But it's just like that and staying around the bar, hanging out, just. Right. And then actually for me, when it also sort of things, when you're more, you're less preoccupied with what's going on around you and more preoccupied with what's going on in your phone, trying to find somebody that way. And so, so yeah, that there was, a, there was, a, those were the two big ones. I think there was, there was, there was at least three times where I was up very late. There's also times where I went out, got quite drunk and then was going through online trying to, you know, find stuff. Um, thankfully, I pretty much always failed. What were some of the consequences of this, though? Because I think the, the other, um, you know, uh, untrue misconception is it, it's it's just sex. You know, everybody does it. You know, it, it couldn't be that bad. He was just getting what he wanted. What were some of the consequences? Because I think the thing is, here's the thing, with alcoholism, with drugs, it's very easy to see the negative side effects. A lot of them are visual. You can see someone acting differently. But when it comes to a sex addiction, what were the consequences that you had looking back on your life at that point? I still always had that underlying Christian morality in the back of my mind. No matter how much I tried to get past it, I just, I had a sense of what was right and wrong. And people could argue about what that really means, you know, how much of that was actually what I knew was right versus what I thought was right. But I always had that morality. So then that, if I'm in that, then I just, you know, there's there's disconnect, this feeling two-faced. And then there was just the I feel like unable to connect with people because you're so preoccupied with this other stuff. I lost so much time with my family because my mind was somewhere else or I just wasn't connected in the moment. And then, I mean, I still deal with the effects to this day because to be honest, and this is what I was going to say, I leave this up to you in terms of including it or not, but in terms of like people and count, you know, partners, I lost count. What does lost count mean? Is that is that hundreds? Is that what, what, for me? That meant about it meant about thirty or forty. Wow, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it occurred in about a five year span. You know, it always it always happened in spurts. But um, what that what that what that means in long term is that it makes you know it makes something like marriage hard because you you rewire it rewires your brain. It does. Because you, on one hand, you are creating this pursuit reward system, and and don't get me wrong, I get so much more fulfillment out of anything with my wife than anything else I ever experienced. It, it, it's just one of those where you've created this pathway, you've created this return where if you just keep feeding that monster, it just keeps broken. You just keep creating that pathway stronger and stronger and stronger. And I know a lot of folks, you know, in today's world, they're like, oh, you know, this, you know, it's just the way people naturally are. We're not really meant to be monogamous. I'm like, no, I can tell that just by the way of the amount of connection and fulfillment I have with my wife versus everything else. It's like, no, this is what I'm made for. This is the connection I'm meant to have. The random hookups and all that kind of stuff is a cheap substitute. Because I also hear from people, they're like, you know, oh, yeah, I know I'm living life, I'm happy. And I'm just like, not really. You've convinced yourself of that. Yeah, I mean, you might be, quote, unquote, happy, but are you really, do you really feel joy in your life? Do you really, like, when you're there alone after one night stand, 50 of the month or whatever it is, it really, you tell me you don't feel lonely? Do, do you think at that time you would have described yourself as happy? Not when I was 
do basically the only one I described was running around when I was really like in the midst of trying to jump from pursuit to pursuit, pursuit, pursuit. I definitely was not happy. If you, if you would have asked me on my public, I'd probably be like, oh yeah, sure. But if it was one of my close friends, I'd probably be like, because eh. I knew I wanted close connection with somebody. And there was a lot of times where it was like, oh my gosh, this person could be the one. And then like immediately afterwards, it'd be like, oh yeah, I don't particularly like them. And that led to some times where I look back and just go, oh, you're freaking jerk. <laughs> like there's, no. there's a couple of things that made me cringe thinking about, but if, if you were able to have a conversation with yourself at that time, knowing what you know now, what is something you would tell yourself? Honestly, the most helpful thing, because it was the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around, is God still loves you. That was the hardest thing, because that was part of the reason why I leaned in that more and more, because it was, it was in the back of my mind, I kind of had this thing of being like, well, you've already come this far. Why, you know, you've already burned the bridge. Why not burn it more? And... The other thing I probably would have said too, which I, I've had, had to tell myself, you know, after I chose to try to get away from all that was play the tape through. Meaning you do this, this is the result. What happens after that? It's a thing, one of my therapists, so the best therapist I ever had, who I saw for, I've saw for years, she was a recovering alcoholic. And that's one of the things apparently they teach in some of the therapy or some of the cognitive stuff about is you take this action you know where it's going. You really do. So if you go out for this one night stand, okay, and let's say best case scenario, you succeed, how are you going to feel the next day? Are you feel any better? Or are you just going to be back on the hunt again? I think those two things would have been the two, the two biggest things I would have tried to tell myself. I, I think it's interesting because, you know, we did an episode recently, too, on uh, pornography addiction and, you know, mm-hmm. a guy who had, you know, hid it from his, his wife and all that. And, and I, I'm interested to see if, if you felt the same way. He described, you know, he, he said something similar. You know, he'd want to tell himself, like, think about how you're going to feel after. But he also described that moment of when you're seeking it and when you're looking for it almost feeling like you're not yourself. Like, you know you shouldn't be doing it, but you're doing it anyway. So. Yeah. Is there any practical tip you have for people who are in that moment? Because you're not the only guy who's who's dealt with this. You know, there's a lot of people, even someone who's possibly listening right now, who's in the midst of this. Are there any practical tips for people who say, yes, I know God loves me. I know it's wrong. But once I get in that, you know, for lack of a better term, that horny mindset, I don't, I physically can't stop myself. I mean, I should also be clear that it's, still, it's something I still struggle with. I mean, absolutely not, not so much of not like physical in-person stuff. Thankfully, you know, that is very much so subsided, but you know, still dealing, still dealing with obviously, cause I've got a little portal that's in my pocket at all times. The most effective thing I found honestly is realizing how little self-control you really possess. And you can have all the strategy, you know, all the mental fortitude in the world, but willpower is only so strong. You only have, your willpower is a muscle. You can, yes, you can make it stronger, but eventually it does fatigue and gives out. The best thing I've found is close every door. Every access point you have, get rid of it. Uh, one thing I'm having to do right now is go back through it and figure out a way to lock my phone down because modern life, I need a smartphone, but it's trying to figure out a way to lock it down without, you know, rendering it into a brick. But that's the only thing you can do is like, yeah, I can sit there and have the conversation like, oh yeah, play the tape through, play the tape. That's great for stuff where it's like, okay, you're going to get up, go out, do X, Y, and Z. But when it's like two clicks there, I don't know any man who's got enough willpower to deal with that. 
day in, day out for months on end. The only thing you can do at that point is say, at that point, you're an alcoholic with a bottle, with a flask in your pocket. Got that's a great, I mean, I, I, that's a, people might think you're exaggerating, but I think that's a fantastic way to describe it because I think it's the same thing. Like the, the addiction is the same, you know, the addiction itself, but the access is more socially acceptable, you know, for something like this. Like no one's going to argue that you shouldn't have a phone, but everyone's going to argue that an alcoholic shouldn't have a bottle full of liquor when that phone is the danger too. But it's harder because society knows everybody needs a phone, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. But um, now I, I want to give people a moment to, you know, if, if this conversation is getting uncomfortable for them at this point, I want to give the moment just to know that I do want to start asking you about your suicide attempt. So if this is something that makes you feel uncomfortable or something that could trigger you, you know, in, in any way, if it's something you struggle with, just make sure you li- listen ahead with with caution. So uh I, I want to o- open this up, and I think the the first way to kind of get into that is what led up to that single moment where you were making that decision to end your life. So it was several things. The whole process ended up snowballing for about a year. The first biggest thing was I was in a relationship with a woman I'd been with for about a year and a half, I think maybe two years, and we had gotten to the point where we had started to talk about getting married. I had done a few things through the I would put this. So basically, we had gotten to, we'd been dating for a while. She was very agnostic, probably kind of atheist, so not really anything there to draw me closer in faith or anything like that. And then we kept, um, as we got, as we sort of had that realization of, oh, wow, this is where this is going. I had known from the get go she did not want to have kids. And I, when I realized that we were getting close to marriage, I panicked. And when I panicked, I went into my own pattern. So, I ended up going to a um, ended up going to the strip club and didn't do anything per se that night. Let's just say I came out with a phone number from one of the uh, ladies who worked there. Didn't do anything while we were uh, while me and my ex were still together, but that kind of got the ball rolling, and we had we broke up um, about a month later, and that was first thing that really hit hard was just the sheer amount of pain I saw in her because from what she expressed and what I saw, you know, everything was fine and all of a sudden it wasn't. And of course, then I'm carrying around the guilt of, you know, well, I told you it was because of the kids, but also I'm carrying this guilt. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is about the kids, but I've also got this. So there's all that. Then that started another time frame of, you know, running around like a madman. And then eventually I ended up meeting the woman who is now my wife. So... We met the week between Christmas and New Year's of 2019. And so we started dating right as COVID started. And one of the things that I was carrying into that with my ex, for my ex was that I cheated. Because it's of my mother, I always told myself, I would never do that. I would never, I'd do all this other stuff and I would never cheat. Well, I'd broken that rule. So I'm carrying, now I'm carrying that shame on top of everything else. So... Me and my wife had started dating, and I'm still struggling with stuff. I'm not really wanting to commit. I'm being, you know, kind of half on, half in, half out. She basically kind of, like, gives me a bit of an ultimatum, so I'm like, okay, I'm here. We ended up breaking up one time because I still realized all those old urges to run, you know, to basically pursue other people are still there. And, of course, I panic. I don't want to cheat again, so I panic and break up. Well, then realize 
you know, they kind of come back to my senses, like, no, okay, you really miss her, okay. So got back together with her, kept getting to the summer, and then same kind of thing happens again later on in the year. Second time we break up, it just, it wrecks me. I mean, absolutely decks me because I'm just, you know, say, I'm having flashbacks. I'm seeing that same pain again at this, if anything, more so this time. And the only thing I can think is, which I thought before, but this time I'm just going to, is you're a monster. All you do, you get close to, all, all you do, you get close to women is hurt them. Because I've got all these, you know, all the one night stands and everything else. And I've got these, you know, conversations where people are facing, you know, call me all kinds of names and things like that. And now I've got someone who I've built and had a close connection to. And then I feel like I've just stuck a knife in her heart. So that night, as I'm driving away, I had had some issues getting up to that point of dealing with some suicidal ideation uh, because I, crazy job, wacky sleep schedule. I was just feeling kind of generally depressed and was having some just odd stuff where, I mean, I was still struggling a lot with the old guilt and shame. I think it was just floating on the surface, but that just brought it up to the forefront. So literally, I was driving away that night about ready to, about thinking like, oh yeah, this is it. You know, I'm going to end up having something figured out. And out of nowhere, I just felt something in me that didn't feel like it was going to run my mind say, don't. Like, that's one of the only times where I you know, hear about God you know, talking to you. I'm 99% sure that's what it was because shouldn't say like, oh, I heard like an audible. No, no, no. Just like, you know how you hear your own internal voice? It was just like out of nowhere. I just heard something. I just felt something go, don't. So that bought me some time. I unfortunately went back to my old kind of ways and I was on some medications. Doctors were trying to calm me down because I was more or less manic. And then uh, the suicidal ideation just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So we got closer to Christmas. And I, I was, it would be around my family. It was always, it was always a break for me. Like whatever was going on, being around my family, even if I was mentally detached, like it still was a relief. So I still remember Christmas Eve going to my aunt's party and I'm sitting in my car at a stoplight and I go, and I I'd actually started praying to go to church again because I was just trying to figure out something. And I, but I'm still doing all my other nonsense. And I prayed you know, God, just put me where I need to be. Put me on the path I need to be on. Well, one of the things that had helped for so long was that the biggest thing I didn't want when it, with, with a lot of the suicidal ideation, what always kind of stopped it was the thought of, A, what it do to my family, but B, what, what would happen to my remains? Because you leave a body and it's a very unpleasant thing. And I didn't know how to deal with that. Well, I realized, and then so... I've got all this going on in the back of my mind. Go to Christmas with my family. Normally, I could, you know, break through and be in the moment. Well, I'm at Christmas morning with my family, and every time I'm, there's a silence between sentences, I'm running through scenarios in my head about how to kill myself. And it just went on like that all day. It was bad. Like, every, everyone in my family, the police following was like, are you good? Hmm. And anyway, that kept on. And I just keep thinking, okay, maybe it'll break through the next day. And as the day goes on, I'm also realizing I am figuring out how to get rid of my number one problem, which is how do you not leave a body? Which, thankfully, I didn't fully piece that together until later on. Uh, I wake up the next day, and I had already told my, ther my therapist that I was having issues, you know, with ideation. Bad. And she had basically said, like, if it gets any worse, you need to go somewhere. I woke up the day after Christmas feeling like 
just wave of just end it, just end it, just end it. And I was like, oh crap. So I basically told my dad and texted my therapist, and was like, uh, I need to go injure myself in somewhere. So the reason why I kind of, I say since I signed the ideation, some people would describe it as an attempt, is because I don't, I wouldn't mess around. If I tried once, there would be no second attempt, there'd be no need. I had things very thoroughly planned out and I knew that morning if I didn't do something, I was going to. And people can say, oh, but you didn't, you didn't remember. I can just say, it's my life, it's my story. I know what I was feeling at that point. So, What was it, I though, that made you take that step to, to go to the hospital? Because that's a bit, I mean, I assume most people who, you know, to check themselves into a, you know, a psychiatric house, that's a huge step for people to do when they need help. And it just, like, was there anything in that moment where you said, like, I can't let myself do this? Like, what was the trigger that made you decide I have to stop myself and I need other people's help to stop me? I think it was realizing how persistent the thoughts were and realizing I couldn't shake them. And then at the same time, the biggest thing was I still cared about my family. I just did not, I didn't want to, the, the biggest driver I think I told uh, like five times when I was being checked in was I didn't want to be the ghost hanging over all the family events. So I didn't do it for me. I did it because I didn't want to be that specter that, it, you know, that hangs over the family. That was the initial driver and realizing like I'm beyond, I'm out of my depth. Like I, I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying. I cannot break this. And having, you know, having my therapist already, had already she, she had already told me, Hey, you should, if this gets worse, check yourself in. And as soon as I kind of clued my dad in on what was going on, he was like, yeah, we need to get you checked in. Cause one of the other things was good is my dad spent a lot of time dealing with mental health side because that was the kind of industry he was in. And also he had learned a lot since divorcing my mother. So he, as soon as he kind of saw, you know, how it was, he was like, okay, yeah, we need to make these arrangements. So practically when you, when you call for help and you go there, I think, uh, there's a lot of fear of people when they know they need that kind of serious help. Like this is more than just like calling a friend and needing to vent. This is you need intervention from other humans to stop you from doing something harmful. I think people, the fear of the unknown can stop people from doing that because they're like, they're going to, you know, I, I don't mean to be casual about this, but it's like, what are they going to do? Are they going to put me in a straitjacket? Are they going to lock me up for, for how long? Like there's all these unknowns. So practically what happens when you what happens after you make that call saying i need help so okay so i can tell you what i did and then what i realized i could have done in hindsight okay so what i did was we went to the local we tried to call a hospital that was going to try to get checked into they didn't have any appointments to let me in they advised me that the best thing to do is go to the er and basically trying to go through the ER psychiatric side and see if I can fast track me in. So that's what I did. Would not recommend unless, unless you are caretaking for somebody who is unable, like they're incoherent, like you can't leave them alone for more than two minutes, like that kind of out there, would not recommend. Because I was in the ER for a couple hours with a guy who was having a very severe psychotic break. Also delayed the process quite a bit. And then they were able to get me set up with a, a good hospital, but then there was an ER, there was a, I had to take a, um, an ambulance right over because they can't let you leave at that point for liability. 
in hindsight, if I would have just made like one or two more phone calls, we could have just gone straight to the hospital, been checked in there, avoided all the issues with the ER. And also I would have avoided a, about a $2,000, 30-minute ambulance ride. What I would say is if you're caring for someone, if you're in the position of like, hey, I got a friend, they're having a psychotic break, ER, go. Worry about the rest later on. But if you are, okay, this person, we got some time. I just, we can't leave alone, but we've got, you know, a few hours. Go ahead and make the extra phone calls. Do that. In terms of the what ifs, I mean, dude, I was terrified. I didn't know what the heck was going to happen. I kind of had, because my dad had been around the cycle a lot. My dad, he sold um, pharmaceuticals and, you know, called a lot of psychiatrists. So I kind of knew that uh, there's a lot of, I had kind of been introduced to some of the stuff in terms of knowing that, like, okay, going in and all that isn't that scary. But still, there was still a lot of unknown. Most of what I was worried about was social judgment, you know, because it's a little hard to hide when you disappear for a period of time. So I had a roommate who had to go to rehab, and, you know, everyone everyone knew when he was gone. He was like, that's weird. You know, and then the whole thing, like, oh, yeah, I had to go do some family stuff, like family stuff where you couldn't answer your phone for a month. So there was all that stuff swung in my head. Uh, but then... Thankfully, once I was in, you know, it was it was good once I got past the intake process. The intake process is the worst part for me because you got to tell. What was bad about it? Like what? What was bad? It was it just like tough questions, or or what was it? Uh, two things. Number one was having to tell the same story again and again and again and again. I, I basically had to explain why I felt I was in need of help. I think five or six times. And it was really frustrating was having a psychiatrist who had talked to me for a grand total of 15 minutes saying, oh, yep, I know exactly what's wrong with you. You're bipolar. And it's like, what? You, I've been seeing psychiatrists and therapists for, since I, I'm 30 years old now. I've been seeing them since I was 17. And you suddenly mystically know what's wrong. And then, oh, yeah, they also get the prescriptions wrong. Yeah, right. That all was bad. Now, the benefit was everything that had to do more with the cognitive therapy. The people there that were therapists, they were all fantastic. I mean, it was also great because, like, you know, people who just worked the desk and all that kind of stuff, you know, who were just staff. They didn't treat you like anything weird. So do you get admitted? Like, do you, like, are you, are you there for how long? You know, what is it like at that point? I mean, I I don't mean to ask you too much of the details, but I think unveiling this Mm -hmm. can help ease the concern for people who might need it. Because I think there's so many misconceptions out there about what it's like and what, you know, like even just what, when you say mental institution to to somebody, I mean, the picture they can get in their head can be from the movies or from asylums. Mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think the more we talk about what really happens, the more likely someone can be to get that help who needs it. So how long were you there? What was it like being there? And and what was the healing process like? So I was only, I was in inpatient care for a week. And part of the reason why I was relatively quick turnaround is because I, I went in knowing something's wrong. I need help. So that kind of moves you up in the line pretty quickly in terms of they want to make sure, okay, once we've assessed and figured out that you're not harm to yourself or others, and basically because you're going there asking for help and you're lucid, that moves you pretty fast track towards getting out. Uh, in terms of environment, I, I would say that I, from talking to the other folks in there, I was fortunate. I was in basically a, a hospital that was sought out. 
because he's one of the best. I didn't realize it when I went in there, but I was basically one of the best ones in the three-hour radius. But and I heard that some of the other places could be a little rough. So just checking a little bit first. And when I say checking, I mean literally just scan through Google. Okay. And of course, half the reviews are going to be terrible because they're written by people who didn't want to be there. Because that's the other thing you have to realize too. Because there's also um, the, mo- the majority of the people I was in there with, they were what they called dual. They were psychological issue on top of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So they had they basically needed both cognitive behavioral therapy and medication to deal with whatever underlying psych- psych- um, psychological conditions. But then they also deal with the fact they're coming down off of alcohol, drugs, whatever. But yeah, as far as like you know, the environment there, it it felt weird at first because it felt a little. It reminded me a little bit of like my dorm in college, just with way more supervision. That's the best way I know how to describe it. And then there's just there's little things that are just odd, like no shoelaces, no um, drawstrings on anything. Uh, you're not allowed to have anything with a power cord. Everything ha- no, nothing battery powered. Like you're nothing battery powered. Everything ha- like that's it. Nothing can have an extension cord, and nothing can be battery powered. So all of that little stuff is odd. But then, what are some of the biggest misconceptions, though, that that you think the average person knows that yeah. you're like, oh wow, I had no idea that that it would be actually be like this. Oh gosh, biggest misconceptions is thinking that you're going to be in there with a bunch of you know people that are truly what we would consider insane. There was there were two that were like that out of an entire floor with like, you know, 30 people, vast, vast bulk of people. If you were just talking, talking to them, totally normal, like pretty normal. Like obviously you had some stuff going on, but they were normal. Like you sit there and have a conversation, just, you know, suit the breeze about life. So it wasn't like, you know, there's someone constantly crawling up the walls. Now don't get me wrong. There was that, but the thing was the orderlies and the staff recognize that and knew how to kind of keep those people at bay. Because also, they're going to categorize people a little differently depending on what they're going through. So yeah, it's not like you're going to go in and all of a sudden you're surrounded by all that. And then it's also not like you're going to be treated horribly. Uh, some people think like, oh, you know, they're going to treat you like I'm nuts or anything else. Like, no, but that was one of the reasons why I talked about the order. Like the, I guess one of the reasons I call them staff members. They just talk to you normally. They're just like, you know, hey, how's it going? Like, they don't ask you a thousand one questions. They know the last thing you want to talk about is why you're there. So they're just talking to you about life and joke around and all that. And most of them have a real, most of them have a really great sense of humor. So yeah, there's not like this huge stigma around it. But like the second day, I was pretty comfortable with people. So what was your faith like in this moment? Because you, you said the thing is, I mean, I, I don't mean to to call you out or anything, but it. No, Sound, it sounds like, you know, but before all this happened, you were pretty good at faking your faith. You know, you were you were saying one thing and doing another. I don't mean oh, yeah. to I'm not here to call you out, but that's just what, what it seems like with the fact that you seem to agree with that. Because, you know, I was going to church and, you know, putting on this, like you're probably putting on a face for people, going out and doing something different. But now you're in a very vulnerable place where you're like, I'm telling people and showing the world or, you know, the people around you, like people are going to ask where you are, you know, all these things, all of a sudden you're vulnerable. So how did your faith change within that? Did it, I mean, maybe it went away. Maybe it, you know, where was your faith in that moment where you're um, getting help? Going into that situation, I had, like I said, I had started going back to church and, you know, all that. And I was still very, you know, arm's length. And there were little things where it's like, if you were paying attention, you could tell I was nominal, uh, just in terms of little things. Like, I never wanted to pray in public. I never took communion. Just little things like that. You could tell I wasn't fully bought in, and I wasn't that willing to lie. 
But yeah, so it's not a good face. Um, as far as my faith when I went in, you know, I believed in God. I had started praying some. I remember the thing I said about praying, you know, praying God where I need to be. When I was showering, getting ready to go into the hospital, I remember looking in the mirror and going, this is not what I word I'm going to come out had in mind. Like, I literally just like yelled at the mirror like, what the heck? But anyway, so while I was in, it was... I started actually reading the Bible again and all that because the biggest thing was I just finally realized I didn't have control. I had this illusion of it, and then that was finally the moment where it's like, bro, you don't. You really don't have control. And so most of the oh, that should be the next time logistical thing is once I was out. The big thing was after that it was all group therapy. I had group therapy like three like every, every day I think for a little while. And then, like, every other day for a little while. So it wasn't like, oh, you're out and you're done. Like, no, I was straight into outpatient care, which was a lot of group, you know, group time. But as that went on, I was trying to get more in my faith and things like that. But I still just kind of had this whole thing of, like, I've done all this stuff. How can God forgive me? And I know he was supposed to be like, oh, but you didn't do anything that bad. It's like, I know where my mind was at. I know how I knew. I knew it was wrong and chose to do it anyway. That was the biggest thing that I just couldn't wrap my head around is how could you, how could I intentionally disobey and just throw it all aside and God still love me and forgive me? How could somebody know all my deepest, darkest, worst moments and still love me? And it was actually, I was reading a, um, so one of the things I had also started doing was I started power listening on audiobook to some books by um, my pastor, who thankfully, the pastor at our church, he's very good at being just down to earth. Just very good at, you know, talking about what faith in the real world looks like. And I've heard the thing for years and years and years about, oh, you know, um, hatred is drinking, it's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. He, in one of the chapters of his book, he basically used the entire chapter to build up to that whole idea. It was, I can't remember, it was the parable where it's talking about the servant who is forgiven of, for like, you know, a multi-million dollar debt and then holds a like $10 debt against somebody else. And what part of what clicked in that moment was part of why I had such a hard idea of knowing God forgive me and accepting that God could forgive me was because the biggest thing I felt guilt and shame over were the same features that I saw in my mother. The biggest thing I could not stand about my mother was that she had cheated on my father and done all this duplicitous, you know, manipulating and all this other stuff. And that's what I hated about myself. That's what I felt shame over. And so then I realized, like, I can't really, I can't, I can't simultaneously ask God to forgive me while holding this against her. I decided, so that week, I decided to rededicate, spoke to the people in my church. They, I had like one of those breakdowns in church, all that went down. They agreed that, hey, it would be appropriate thing would probably be, you know, re-baptism. Normally, they're not a huge fan of it, but they're like, given whole circumstances, think it's appropriate. Later that week, I went to go speak to my mother. First time I had spoken to her since I was 23, so I was 30 years old. The last time I spoke to her, I was 23, so seven years. And then before that, it had been another five years, so. Wow, so what was that like? I can't even imagine, like you've gone through this intense healing process 
and you've you've realized the root of all the causes. And I think that that's you know, uh, uh, as a quick aside, I think a big mistake a lot of Christians make, um, you know, when they when they struggle with things, is they want to treat the symptoms and not the, the 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 deeper cause. And it sounds like you know, through a lot of your life, you were trying to quick fix a lot of these symptoms of like, well, I just have to stop doing this and then I'll get better. But then when you found that deeper symptom, you know, r- r- related to your mom, it sounds like you found kind of that root that that you could yeah. now dig up and heal. So what was that conversation like? So one thing I do just for my own sake is also, because one of the things also realized how much of it was tied up with my mother was during group therapy. One of the things I had happened was realizing part of my stuff was I felt abandoned by her. And like I had a day in group therapy where afterwards I would break my hand hitting a wall because I had the first time in my life I'd ever said she abandoned me. Wow. So that got the ball rolling to that train of thought. So I'm just a little aside. I hate it when people are like, well, there's this and there's this. Like, there's no, like, wait, what happened in between? So that was one of the big things that kind of got that, like, light bulb going in my mind of how much of it was still tied up with her, even though it had been so long. But I knew she was living with my aunt. I called my aunt, said they hadn't heard from me in years, but they'd been trying to call me on holidays and stuff like that. And I was just quick, you know, let it go to voicemail. But I called my aunt. I was like, is she there? Yeah. Said, okay. I'm coming down to visit. So I drove down, get to the house. Lady answers the door. And I go, um, is this, is this the address where, um, my, I said my aunt's name lives and Liz says, yeah, I was like, wait, what? And she's like, she goes, she goes, you don't recognize me. Wow. So in the time since I had last seen her, she, uh, my mother had lost quite a bit of weight. She had a double mastectomy and had a severe infection from that. She had been through basically liver failure. I didn't recognize her at all. She, uh, she, or, you know, as I look at my dad and he'll be like, okay, it's been 10 years. He's aged 10 years. My mother aged 30. So yeah, uh, we sat down and talked and I told her like, so yeah, I was just in the hospital. And she asked if I was married or anything. And I was like, and I told her, well, I had someone, but I screwed it up. And then, you know, kind of got through all of it and was like, yeah, I've gotten back more to faith and all that. And, um, I told her, I was like, I, the main thing I told her was like, I love, I still love you and I forgive you, but I can't be around you. Because one of the things, when I got rebaptized, I asked advice from the pastor and he said, forgiveness and reconciliation don't always go hand in hand. One of the biggest things I realized when I saw my mother was she was beaten down in so many ways. I mean, she had, she was broken down, but I could still see and feel some of that fire some of that like because she also first in her life she actually took responsibility that she was the main catalyst for so much of what my sister and i went through so that's the other thing too is like no matter what i went through it was nothing compared to what my sister got but she finally took responsibility for it but i also was just like i can't i can i can tell there's still just that if you're in my life it's it's not going to be healthy for either of us. She asked if she should, you know, she could hug me, and I just said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't have it in me right now. And then I left, and I I knew that's, that's the biggest thing I needed to tell her to her face was that she was still my mother, and I still loved her, and then I forgave her. And that really, that was kind of the big, that was the big, like, kind of moment I could feel things start to shift was realizing that, okay, I've 
unburdened myself of this hatred because I mean, that, there's no innocent but I hated my mother. Getting past that really got the ball rolling on a lot of stuff. And some people have talked about like, oh, well, you did like, you know, this like wild, like, you know, just attacked it. It's like, that was one thing that did pick up well from my dad and also because of some of my mother is with everything. If I know what the solution is, as soon as I realize what the solution, I just want to get it over with. Like, I just, I'm like, okay, if there's a band-aid, I'm going to just rip it off, get it done. And I got, and at that point, I was so tired of feeling miserable. I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. Okay, let's just pop, you know, plow on ahead. Um, but also at that time, I was, I quit my job, but that job was toxic. It was terrible. But, um, you know, so I was having to lean on faith quite a bit. Of, so where are you at now? So let's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like, you know, you've, you've been through, you, you've had this life of so many uh, ups and downs. Who is Tyler now? Well, let's see. So quick catch up to get through all that. So I ended up reaching back out to the, to my now wife. I came clean to her about everything. Told her everything I had done, the reasons why I had panicked and broken up with her, all of that. I thought on it. I prayed on it. I was asking my stepmother for advice because she's probably the most emotionally intelligent person I know. I was like, I think I'm being drawn to like try to go back to her. And I knew, like, I, I was in tune enough where I knew, like, okay, if I go back with her, this is not dating. This is a prelude to marriage. This is basically the only way this ends well at this point is if we both look at each other ends with a ring or us looking at each other at the same time and going, meh, and breaking up that way. There's no other way this ends well. So she took me back, and, you know, we had to go through a lot of hard conversations, and... At the same time, it was me trying to go through and put together the pieces. Um, now, um, I mean, I basically look at it and go, I can't make it through the day. Like, God's the reason why I'm here. And there's no ifs, ands, or no, there's no other way around it. There's no other way of saying it besides I'm, God's the only reason why I'm here. And I lean on that fact a lot. I still struggle and screw up and, you know, still, you know, I still find myself dealing with, you know, all the usual things, but at the same time, I just see that I just had my birthday not long ago. And I remember people talking about like, you know, oh yeah, life's a blessing and everything else. I just looked at the last couple of years and went, my life is a collection of blessings because my family hung out, hung in there with me through it all, which I know some people aren't blessed with, but I'm very thankful I have been. And my wife hung in there with me because, you know, it's still a healing process, even today, it's been getting on three years and you know she eventually ended up coming to faith and as well and you know just us trying to build that life together and then besides that you know i'm help out with the church some uh, actually now we a group of high school boys um i gave them the short version of my testimony um, I've got to tw- I got it twice now once to a group i had for summer camp and then again in my normal group and both times they were just kind of like <laughs> wow like yeah yeah all that like Jason Wittinger doing it doesn't work out as well as you think <laughs> well yeah, I, I I think there's there's so many Christians out there who struggle with their mental health and mm-hmm. they all think they're alone or they mm-hmm. think it's not as common as as people but I think even I'd like to, to give your story credit I think people who have even severe mental health issues or severe trauma or anything like that they feel like they're alone and they don't realize how common it is because these topics especially when it comes to suicidal ideation they're uh, like I said in the beginning of the episode there is a fear 
about this, a, a, a fear mm-hmm. of, of talking about it, a fear of having these conversations in any sort of public forum. So I want to pull back the, the, the curtain for a minute and let you talk to those people. So to those people who are listening right now who struggle with suicidal ideation or severe mental health specifically, what do they need to know from you who now seemingly is on the other side in a happy marriage, in ministry, has been through the, the worst of the worst and is now in like in kind of a healed lifestyle. What do you want them to know? So, oh man, there's a lot. But I think the first biggest thing is knowing it's not a matter what that you are loved. I think that's the hardest thing to wrap your mind around. And I know I've talked to some people, you know, like I was in the hospital with folks that their life was horrifying in a lot of ways. But just knowing that everything that God says about you in terms of you are his, you are chosen, you are loved, it's all true. And the other thing is real another thing is knowing that just because you become faith, that doesn't mean life gets easier per se. I will say that trials and things like that have been easier because I do have an underlying faith of okay, God's gonna work out in the long run. And at the same but also realizing that there is no shame in asking for help. There's, there's, there is absolutely no shame in it whatsoever. Some people, they get this kind of mindset of, oh, I don't want to show the weakness or whatever. Screw that. Literally, just forget about it. One of the things I also realized, too, and this is really true for a lot of guys, uh, it's because I know some parties when I chose to try to be relatively open, like big guy, train CrossFit, you know, I actually coach it now. And I did like speech stuff in school so I can actually present all this kind of stuff. People, so people kind of think like, oh, yeah, you're not the kind of person who struggle with that. No, dude, like we, the amount of times where I see so much bravado and things like that, it's like, you're just covering up. And you kind of get these people who get this whole tough guy mentality. It's like, really, who's who's tougher? The one who puts on this massive coat of armor or the one who's willing to show up and truly be, like, what to, what's really harder? You know, so you think, you know, you're tough, whatever. No. And then for those folks where it's like, you do have that guilt and shame, I just keep playing into, you are loved and there are people out there that will show God's love to you. And yes, there are, there are horrible Christians out there. People who claim to be Christians that are horrible people. I've met them, but there's also a lot, there's also a lot of good ones. And sometimes you can lose hope, but they're out there and they're waiting. They don't try to help you. It's just a matter of figuring out how you find them and just don't lose hope. Man, that's, I I mean, I, I I mean, this is going to change so many lives because I, I think the thing that a lot of people don't realize is even if you specifically don't, don't struggle with this, it's almost a guarantee that you know somebody who does and that they're not talking about it. So when someone comes to you, you know, with a story like Tyler's, I would hope you can think back to, you know, a lot of things that you shared that they can use in those conversations that they, they like knowing that they're loved, you know, things like that. Because the, the issue that I think a lot of Christians can get into is they want to come up with a solution right away. They want to fix it. So they're like, read your Bible or they're like, go, go do this, go do that. And they give a lot of advice that looks good on paper, but is not good practically or, or can come off as as unloving. So I think you just sharing your story is going to have a huge impact on people's lives. So thank you so much for sharing it. Mm-hmm. No problem.